Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a marvelous thought that is. Good morning, it's good to be with you, I'm Kurt Parker. If you have uh, students up through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church at this time, they can be dismissed to those classes. Uh, the teachers will meet them in the foyer and uh, you can pick them up downstairs when we're all done. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Continuing study, God's plan for a healthy church, confidence in the future, chapter 5. To preserve our time and the word together, let's begin by reading the passage that we're seeking the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of this morning, just picking up in verse 11, if you would. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, that is for God, if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Stop right there. Assess the Lord for wisdom as we seek his word today. Lord, we thank you today uh, in advance for the time we'll spend in your word that you have uh, equaled up to even your own name. Uh, It's every word that we want to know. It's every thought that we'd like to know that you would have us know by your Holy Spirit. We'd like to know. So I pray that you'll guide us as we read. And as we study and compare and seek understanding, let your Holy Spirit uh, work in us that we might have that understanding. What does it mean? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me? And then take that knowledge out and live that way. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. As we noted last time in our study, Paul has moved from how to know your building with the right materials and that future accountability with the Lord to how to plan your life ministry, waypoints that will be true in order that your conscience may be clear and you can have good confidence in the future in your conscience. And so we saw a number of waypoints that are to be true or would be true that your conscience, uh, if your conscience is going to be clear. And they included a number of things which we won't go over again today, but they include a reverential fear of that future meeting. And that prompts a concern for the church, a laboring for her to bring her to perfection, whatever ministry that you have. It includes that encouragement to the church for her perfection. Uh, not worrying about what people think uh, or what you look like or, or all of that. And, but by that faithfulness and that fearlessness, teaching the church discernment. And, and by that, they'll understand what ministry is supposed to look like and then model that ministry and we have just barely, of course, touched on those truths that we looked at in depth over the last couple of weeks. So if you missed any of them, you can catch up online. And then he gets to verse 14, and we left up here last time. So looks there, if you would. Um, remember now he says this in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us or constrains us, having concluded, that, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, he says, all died. And, and this was... Uh, the most recent waypoint for Paul as he shares his heart on the confidence he has in his conscience. So this is how he says it. Uh, he uses that word control. The word, the word control in the Greek is soon echo, present active indicative. It's the constant reality for Paul. 
So it can be translated as constraints, which means to restrain or even to hold in custody. And we saw a couple examples of that, I think, to help us understand that word very well, for it is, it's this motivation that drives Paul forward into ministry that's very difficult. Uh, it, it's integrity in ministry that he desires and a, a clear conscience. And so uh, in order to have that clear conscience, he knows that it's the love of Christ that constrains him. Luke 19.43 uses the words, Jesus is giving an illustration, uses these words and some others to help us get the feel of Paul's statement. In verse 43, it says, for the days will come, Jesus is speaking about Israel in the future, the days are going to come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. There's one word that helps us understand our word. Uh, so a barricade keeps you from going one way, that makes you, forces you another way, uh, and, and surround you, uh, and, there, and, and so a barricade, a surrounding, and here's our word, hem you in on every side. That's our word, uh, uh, soon echo. Uh, constrain on every side. And in other words, Israel will be constrained and will only be able to go in one direction. There's going to be a motivation by that constraining for Israel to repent, of course. And uh, we know that from history. But we saw a parallel uh, of the verb translated controls, suneko, in Philippians 1.23. Paul says about himself, he says, but I am hard-pressed. Uh, that's our word, suneko my. I'm hard-pressed in the plural from both directions. Uh, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better, he says, uh, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So, in other words, Paul says, knowing that the God has prepared for him a glorified body in the presence of Jesus pushes him one way, and, and knowing the benefit of the ministry God will do through him while still on earth pushes him another way. So we get this idea of the constraining of these two thoughts that have they have on Paul and his desire to be with Christ or to remain on. And so he, he felt the pressure of the two alternatives so that he was motivated on the one hand to do one thing, but on the other hand to do the opposite. So this illustrates the basic meaning of suneko, which is to press together or constraint. Now, uh, it, it, it is the pressure applied, I think, is if you want to get the true feel of it, not so much to control as to cause action. Uh, it, it's, it is um, as much motivational as it is directional. So it's an idea where, you know, we're throwing up a barrier, of course, we understand that in traffic where there's some cones or there's uh, a traffic lane that's blocked, we have to move that. We understand that's moving us in one direction. It's also motivating us to obey the law and do the things we're supposed to do and not wait till the last minute and all that stuff that goes along with when we see one lane ahead. But the, the source of the pressure, of course, uh, in verse 14 we saw is in the present tense, which emphasizes the continuous nature of the pressure on Paul. And the source of the pressure is the love of Christ. Uh, Alex just talked about our love for Christ. This particular passage is talking about Christ's love for us. The love of Christ constrains us. And we looked at all the background verses for that last time. We won't go back there again. And this is one of, of the confidence and conscience principles. And we saw that uh, to be controlled then on a daily basis, if we understand this from Paul correctly, by the realization and the impact of Jesus' love for you, a love that is so vast and so intense, and so overwhelming, and so unexplainable on a human level that it should inspire everything that you do. Now, we're going to explain it more because Paul is going to do that as well, and why this is so important and such a huge force in his life. Paul is very grateful for the love of Christ that saved him, uh, that it, it prompts him really continue to serve the Lord with integrity, uh, even in hard situations. And so, he was overwhelmed by the love of Christ exhibited because Christ died for him when he was yet a sinner. When Christ Jesus died, he died for, in Paul, from Paul's perspective, initially Saul of Tarsus. Uh, when, uh, just in general, when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of Saul of Tarsus were in him. He paid that penalty 
for Saul's sin. Okay? He substituted his death for Saul's death. And this is an overwhelming love. This was an overpowering grace to a blasphemer who hated the very Christ who died for him. Now, the sense of the word helps us see that Paul really didn't have a choice. Uh, but that wasn't really a bad thing. That's a good thing for him. It's, it was the reality of Paul's life. He was held fast, if you will, by the love of Christ. And it's more than just a compulsory duty. It's not just, okay, well, Jesus did this, so now I have to do that. That kind of thing. It's not a response that way. Okay? It's, it's more than that. It's an irresistible love. And Paul was willingly yielding himself to that love. And he is driven by it and, and uh, forced to conform in a certain way. Because the Lord has loved him so greatly, he responds by giving up his life for the ministry. That's the, that's the idea. Now, let's look back to the last part of verse 14. Look in your copy of God's Word. And again, I, I always want you to look down on your copy, the digital copy, on your paper copy, make some notes, cross-reference, understand and engage in the passage. We're only going to come away with, uh, to the extent that, with, with uh, content to the extent that we engage. So back to the Word. This is how we study the Word. I, I encourage you to study the Word this way. The Bible explains the Bible. Uh, do this thing. So let's look back, verse, last part of verse 14, and the same topic, of course, extends into verse 15. He's really explaining this love that constrains him. So we get that in the last of 14, first of 15. So verse 14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, here it is, one died for all, therefore all died. Now let's look at that one died for all. So Paul is concluding every believer, and every believer can conclude. Krenitas, he, he's, he's working it through. Aorist active participle Greek verb, having concluded. So it's, it's, a, it's already established with Paul. Of course, he's calling us to, to reason that out. It's a completed action for him here. That's how the text describes it, having concluded. So it's a term used of court proceedings. It's a, a very common in ancient uh, times where evidence has been brought forward in a court case and a decision has been rendered. So all the evidence is there. The judge has gone through all of it. Now a decision has been rendered. This is that idea. This is where this word is from. And if we apply this to Paul, then uh, probably not long after the Damascus Road, uh, meeting with Jesus, uh, this previously fanatical Pharisee from Tarsus uh, who ran around thoughting, uh, thinking he is doing God's will by persecuting those who follow the way, this guy thought carefully upon Calvary. So this wasn't just a passing type, okay, Jesus did this, I know the facts. And, and, and here's the deal. For Paul, it's not that he didn't know the facts about the death of Jesus prior to his conversion. He did. So he already knew the facts of Jesus' death. This wasn't, this wasn't some new thing, oh, Jesus died for me. This was, uh, Jesus dying already was familiar to Paul. The fact that his disciples declared he was alive was familiar to Paul. All these facts were already in place. And so uh, Paul is thinking carefully on it. He already knew the facts of Jesus' death. It's just now this, this very recent and concerned believer was prompted to consider and overhaul his thoughts, if you will, on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul says that the reason he's so overwhelmed by the love of Christ, see, the reason why he is directed to give up his life and put up with everything he must endure, this first part of this conclusion, how he comes to this, is that he's come to this reasoned decision after he's looked at all the evidence that Jesus' love was demonstrated most completely, catch this, in his substitutionary death. That's the first part of his conclusion. He, he says, listen, I, you know, he's come to faith 
dramatically on the Damascus Road. He has now since begun to think about the love of Christ. He has said categorically that it constrains him and, and forces him to do things he willingly wants to do, but, but that love of Christ displayed. So what did he understand? He understood that it was a substitutionary death. Even while he was yet a sinner, Romans 5, 8, right? Christ died for him. So he understood that very clearly, and he concluded that substitutionary death was one of the reasons why the love of Christ is, con- is, is constraining me. It's a substitutionary death, his death for my death. It's not just that Christ's death on the cross that moved Paul. It was the death of Christ understood in a particular way. One died for all. Apathanin, hooper, pantone. Three words in the Greek. The first word, compound verb, apa, separated from life, of course. That's implied. And thanasco, to death. So separated from life to death, to be dead, eris active indicative. So one died, so uh, uh, an established past event at the time in the past Christ was separated from physical life unto death we understand that Paul understood that and he has pondered it the second word preposition hooper usually translated for and the third word is the Greek adjective panton translated all so so the literal understanding Jesus died and you can put this in here in parentheses for the sake of all that's Paul's that's Paul's reasoned conclusion Jesus died for the sake of all now there's been a lot of debate concerning what that means, and whether it should be understood to mean instead of, i.e., Christ dying in the place of all, or for the sake of all, as we just, uh, as I just gave it to you, or does it mean Christ dying for the benefit of all, and and uh, which means something quite different than instead of all, and so it, it would seem important to nail that down. Otherwise, you can come away with a theology that doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture, and so that's why we're going to take this a little bit at a time. And this is one of those sermons where. Uh, I kind of take off the preacher hat and put on the teacher hat, if you will, and I, you know that I do that often anyway. But this is an important principle to understand. Paul concluded this after reasoning all, uh, through all of the uh, very important uh, parts of Christ's death. He's come to some important conclusion, and it's important for you to think through it as well. Okay, So Galatians 3.13 is a good place to start as we think about uh, the Bible explaining the Bible and some, some illustrations to help us understand what we mean by Hooper. Um, Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, here's our word, hooper, for us, for it's written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, in that context, it appears to say that Christ clearly endures God's curse instead of us. I think that's easy to to grasp. Uh, There was absolutely no reason for him to endure God's curse otherwise. Right? I mean, he didn't have to hang on a tree if it wasn't in our place. So on the tree, i.e. in his death on the cross, he bore the curse of God instead of us. So in the context of 2 Corinthians 5.14, uh, it would answer uh, and express that one has died for, hooper, all, means that Christ died instead of the all. And then I think that's how Galatians 3.13 can be understood as well. The interpretation preserves the logical connection then with what follows. Uh, so for Paul, so the first part of his reasoning, he's concluded it's a substitutionary death. Uh, the second part uh, of, of his conclusion, he's reasoned that the character of Christ's love is understood as that which moved him to die, mark this, in the place of all men. So it's a substitutionary death, but it's a substitutionary death in the place of all men. Okay? And that would seem to account for its great motivational power in Paul's life. But there's, there is a ripple effect because of that. Paul can pull every believer in. And we're going to see that as we work through the words of this last part of verse 14 and then down through verse 15. Now, let's look at the next three English words. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, and here's where the rub is, okay? 
And perhaps you haven't looked at it this closely or understood what was being said, but it's huge. Okay, so Paul says, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. I've reasoned through this, he says. I've come to this established conclusion that one died for all, so substitutionary death. And then he says, therefore, all died. So what does therefore refer to? So therefore, Christ died in the place of all, see? And and that has its continuation added to it. All died, therefore. So Christ died. One died for all, therefore. So there's there's some ripple effect here. If that's the case, then all died. Now again, an obvious question comes up. Who are the all to whom the reference is made? And did everyone die in Christ? Now, this is an important thing to understand. Because if you say it one way, then you're going to have a meaning that's going to extend out into other verses. And then it's going to bounce into them. And you're not making a straight cut because you cut the word here. But it's not going to fit back in where you need to plug it in. And so I'll, make, I'll give you some examples here. So the question is, does Paul mean all people, the totality of the human race? Did they all die in Christ? And what is the answer to that? Obviously, it can't mean that, can it? Because if you died with Christ, then you are redeemed. So everybody didn't die with Christ. The all, of, the all of totality of the human race didn't die with Christ. And the whole of the human race isn't redeemed. So there's no universal salvation. And if you say it, it's just, um, you know, all the others who died in him, you know, uh, you know future case... So everybody died who will eventually die in him. So you're looking forward and saying, okay, he only died for the people who will eventually die in him and, and, and associate themselves with the, the, uh, the death of Christ. Then, then you have another problem, see, because uh, what it appears to mean, and it's a very concentrated passage, uh, is that when Christ died, mark this, beloved, all humanity of which Christ was the head died, now mark this, potentially with him to sin and its manifested selfishness and its ultimate punishment. So the sins of all men were in him. Okay. Does that mean that all died? It does not mean that all died because if you die in Christ, you're redeemed, but it means that the sins of all men were in him. Okay. And this is an important fact to delineate because, and that's why Paul's pondering through this. And he comes to this satisfied conclusion after looking at all the evidence. Okay. It's important to delineate this, that he died for all, and all men and all the sins of men were in him, okay? Otherwise, if you don't take that position and you just say it's just, he's just dying for the ones who will die for him in the future, see, die in his, associate with his death in the future, then you, here's the problem, you're going to strike out the concept that Christ loves the world. If you just say it's only for the ones who are the elect in the future, that's all he died for, you can't really force that into this verse because Paul isn't speaking that way, see? And it makes really John 3.16 mean something other than its clear meaning. It's in John 3.16, what do we have for, catch this. And, and, and uh, beloved, understand this. Paul says, he says, um, therefore all died. Christ died for all, therefore all died. Understand that that's the only way when you can witness, you can say that Jesus loves the entire world and died for it. See? I mean, and you have to say what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, that he, what? 
gave his only son, his only begotten son, same idea, God gave his son over to death as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of those who deserved it. Okay, we understand that. That's the world. Now here's the potential. That whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Here's how it works. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son, the one who died for all. Now, First Peter 3.18, look there. It's another great illustration. I want you to start to put your mind around this. This might not be something you've thought through, but it's important. Verse, verse 18. For Christ, Peter says, for Christ also died for sins once for all. So same exact intent of meaning. Instead of mankind, who? Jesus. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So all died, all were placed in a position that upon belief, what? They would be free from the guilt and the punishment of sin. Otherwise, you must say all died means all people lost their legal guilt when Christ suffered. But if that's the case, what then of the necessity for repentance and faith and a view to salvation? See, And that would lead to the notion that the elect were justified before they came to faith, implying that they never need to believe because they were saved already. See, and you can't have that. That doesn't do away with the doctrine of election. We've gone through that very extensively. And, but this is not Paul's point here. This isn't Paul's emphasis. Paul has reasoned through why the love of Christ constrains him, and he's come to these conclusions, and so we need to define what he means by these words, because if we say they mean one thing, we're going to get into another passage and realize it can't possibly mean that. So that's why we're taking some time. Now let's keep looking at how Paul supports his statement that the love of Christ constrains us, and how he's motivated for the work of the ministry, and thus has great confidence in his conscience. So he died, Paul says, he died for all, and then he says all died. And now we're going to see this potential come to fruition, we kind of see Paul kind of opening up this statement so we begin to understand what's going on here. And, and this describes Paul's life. It's, it's this effectual outworking of salvation on the redeemed. But God loved, so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son in their place. Okay, we have to understand that to be true. But then there's this outworking of this marvelous position that you've been put in. And verse 15 says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So he's bringing in so that they who live, see. Paul says, we've, dim we've determined this, we've ascertained this. If Jesus died, then we have all died too, potentially. All the sins of the world were in Christ. We understand that. But that has to have an outworking of some kind, okay? The sin of every man. So if Jesus died, then we have all died too, potentially. But in belief by faith, the potential becomes what? The reality, see? And if we all died, then we no longer live the way we used to live. We live the new life that we live to him. See, that's the concept. We see the same thought in other places, like Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. And again, this can help you understand Paul's language here. He says, set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on the earth. So that's great, but how do I do that? Uh, well, realize, understand by faith, verse 3, for you have died. Well, dead to what? To the sin sphere. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So when Christ died, all your sins were future, right? And you, your sins were hidden in Christ. 
but you weren't redeemed. But you were there at a place where you could be. See? You understand? So the Lord's death and the resurrection affected the potential destiny of everyone who's ever lived. That's the only way he can say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It, it affected the potential destiny of everyone who ever lived. We have to understand that, okay? The Lord's death satisfied the debt that all men owe, and the Lord's life proved that the payment was sufficient. But there's an effectual outworking on those who believe. See? Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says it this way. I love this. This, this captures it so well. In 6 1, he says this What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Uh, grace may increase, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So, same, same language. So, we died, okay? Now, it's speaking, of course, of the effectual outworking of that death. See, the effectual outworking of that death is redemption, those who believe by faith. And that's who Paul's talking to here. And then, verse 3 points out the difference between the potential and the actual. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus' Jesus Christ had been baptized into his death. Now, let's look at that just for a second because that helps clarify what we're talking about. What's that mean? Well, this, okay? The first thing that happens when you're saved is you attend your own funeral, okay? You didn't know you needed to attend your own funeral until you came, became redeemed. You didn't realize that your potential, all your sin was potential for the future. We weren't even born yet when Christ died, okay? And Paul says, uh, what was yet sinner, Christ died. We understand that. It's all potential, and you, all your sin hidden in Christ on the cross. That's the magnitude of the love and the power of God, the sinless one, to go to the cross and die and rise. Is the, the, all the sin of the whole world hidden in him. But you didn't know you had to attend your own funeral until you came to faith. And that's what you have to do. Jesus died for all, but redemption, Paul says, baptizes you into Christ. Now look at verse 4 because it gets another grip on this concept and, uh, and makes it clear. So verse 4 says this, Therefore... So, being that's the case, we have been buried with him through baptism, that's not water now, that's the spiritual sense, okay, into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, stop right there. The intent of the death of Christ was that men and women would also be buried in his death. Now, until you come to faith, you're not buried in his death, okay? You have your sins in Christ already atoned for. But what do you have to do? You have to assimilate that truth into your life. See, we believe what God has said. See, uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's potential for everybody in this room, right? Because Christ died and rose before you were even born. So you have that potential for that substitutionary atonement to take effect in your life. But it's just potential until that point. You see? Romans 3.24 then follows up. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So this justification, this, this uh, satisfying of the debt through Christ, this gift of grace is given through Jesus. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a substitution in his blood, satisfaction in his blood through faith. And then Romans 6.23 says this. Sorry, I'm behind one here. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the death Christ died, see? And then Romans 6.8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. And that's the intent 
Listen, beloved, that's the intent of the death of Christ, was that men and women would also be buried in his death. And that's the context of our passage, see? The intent of his death of Christ was that men and women would also be buried in his death. All their sin was in Christ on the cross. But his desire was that they would be buried together with him. That's the reality of all who come to repentance by grace through faith. And if that's the case, then we rise as his resurrection, see? Otherwise, if everybody died in Christ, then everybody would rise at his resurrection. But it can't be that, right? Because by grace through faith, we're saved. So it's an incorporation of the payment that was made on the cross. And this is an important concept to grasp. When you were saved, you put your faith in Jesus as your only hope to save you from your sins. And you can't really explain that in a real sense, only that in this most simple of explanations. When you were saved by this wonderful act of God, in the spiritual sense, you were placed in Jesus. And you were taken back 2,000 years, and you died, and you were buried, and you were buried so that the old life could die, and you could rise and walk in what? Newness of life. And, And compare that to what we understand about the sins of Adam, okay? Everyone is guilty of the sins of Adam. You're just as guilty as if you were there in the garden and committed it. You were born under that headship and you commit acts of sin every day and show that you're under the headship of Adam. The marvelous part of salvation is that all your sins potential in the future, hidden in Christ at salvation, and there you were placed so that someday you could repent and believe and come to faith. And the Lord does that through his own will and we understand that. But the fact of the matter is we can't say God loves the whole world if it's just limited, okay? If, if Paul's just saying, and all die who will die in Christ later, it can't mean that, see? Because then you have a real problem when you bump into John chapter 3, verse 16. So, here a death took place, the death of Adam's nature, and what comes out of the grave is something very different than what went into the grave, okay? And we're going to see that in just a short time, verse 17, or 2 Corinthians five seventeen. It says the same thing, right? If any man be in Christ, he is a what? What is he? A new creation, right. So, although it seems very complicated in a practical application, it's really very simple. Christians are different, see. It's not that you don't do what the rest of the world does because of a bunch of rules and regulations. You don't do what the rest of the world does, beloved, because you're different than you were, see. That's the power of salvation. You don't have the same characteristics as you had in your former life. You're not the same person that you were. And as Paul said, that love he says, constrains him. He says, for the love of Christ controls us so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's what happens. That's the outworking of salvation. See, Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says this, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, he says basically the same thing. What? You too might walk in newness of life. See? That's not a maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's a divine accomplishment, see? You will do it because the Father accomplished it for you. Might walk, peripedeo, to, to make due use of opportunity. That's the idea. You'll make due use of the opportunity to walk. It's, it's your new occupation to make it your way of conduct, see? The love of Christ, he says, constrains me to do this very thing. It's the same idea as 2 Corinthians 5.15. What does it look like when you really die and come to life so that those who live might no longer live for themselves? Jesus isn't added to your life like some you know, divine sprinkling of salt to your human activity. 
See, Jesus did the work on the cross, died your death, paid your penalty, and when you come to him by faith, and that's what you have to do to get credit for the death of Christ, this remarkable truth. When you come to Christ, see, you are immersed in his death and you rise to walk a new life. So, not just potential death to sin, real spiritual death to sin, see? We die in Christ in order to live in Christ. We share in his death in order to partake of his life, see? We're justified to be sanctified, set apart by God for his use. Not living for yourself anymore. And those are inseparable realities, see? And if you want one, you must receive the other. And if you want to live eternally with Christ, see, you must share in his death. It's not enough to know the details of the sacrifice and that all your sin was paid for on the cross. Just that knowledge is not sufficient, see. You have to share in that death. You have to exchange the life you have for the one he offers, his life in you. And, and Christ's resurrected life was the certain consequence of his death. So a holy life, a resurrected life, is the certain consequence of your death to sin, see. And, and that's the same idea that controls Paul, see, everything he does. Paul understood that it was a substitutionary death. Paul understood that it was a substitutionary death for everyone. And he knew that when you rise to life, that's going to become the controlling factor in all of the ministry. See, the overwhelming, unexplainable, compelling, vicarious death on his behalf and on behalf of the whole world, that love prompted, which prompted it, is the controlling factor then in everything that Paul did. Now, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the, glo- through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What's that mean? Well, new in terms of quality, see? A new kind of life, a new quality of life, not like the old life. Righteousness now becomes our pattern. That's the whole Second Corinthians 5.15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose on their behalf. Whereas in the past, it was, it was all uh, unmitigated sin and selfishness and living for the world and living for self and living for material motivation. That was the old pattern, see? Even though all those sins had already been paid for on the cross, your old pattern was this because you hadn't come to life because you hadn't died truly spiritually yet, See? Now is the pattern of righteousness because the love of Christ controls us. A new quality of life. And the Bible speaks of this in such really beautiful terms. Ezekiel chapter 36, he says he calls it a new heart. Ezekiel 18, new spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 calls it a new creation. Galatians 6.15, new creature. Ephesians 6.24 calls it the new man. Revelation 2.17, a new name. Psalm 40 says we have a new song. Everything's new, see. Everything's new. But then Paul affirms this great truth, verse 5 of Romans 6 illustrating this this so well by using another analogy to sum up his thoughts. In Romans 6, verse verse 5, he says this, For if we have, this is so great, become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This united is sumphotos, grown together, joint origin, see, Is that what happened potentially for you when Christ died on the cross? No. Were you of joint origin with Christ? No. You were his enemy, still dead, right, in your sin. But now, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, if we've owned that death, see, that's what happens when you come and repent and confess. 
you say when you confess that everything the Bible says about you is true, right? That you're dead in your sin, worthy of, of the punishment that comes by being under a curse. So when we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, of joint origin, that's the word congenital, present at birth, it's, it, listen to the words, in the likeness, homoioma, like unto identity, see, such as amounts almost to equality of identity. So if by grace through faith you have owned that death and you have confessed and forsaken the sins that lead to the necessity of Christ's death on your behalf, then this is your reality, see. If we have been grown together with Christ, it is his death in us. If it's his life in us, if it's his him in us, his power in us bearing fruit, if we grew together in his death, we grow together with him in his resurrection. I've read to you from this before, literary churchman. It's um, 1862, Bishop Mulk. He says this, I love this. This, is, this captures this idea. He says, um, we've received the reconciliation that we may now walk not away from God as if released from a prison, but with God as his children and his son, because we are justified, we're to be holy, separated from sin, separated to God, not as a mere indication that our faith is real and we are legally safe, but because we were justified for this very purpose. He says that we might be holy. The grapes on the vine, he said, are not merely a living token that the tree is a vine and is alive. They are the product for which the vine exists. It is a thing not to be thought of that the sinner should accept justification and live to himself. It is a moral contradiction of the very deepest kind that cannot be entertained without betraying an initial error in the man's whole spiritual understanding of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 grasps it, and we've looked at this over and over again, so I'll kind of begin to wrap up here with it. He says in verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of what works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created. So here's, here's the deal. Were we physically alive before? Yeah, right? So it's not talking about physical creation there. What's he talking about? You've been made new in the spiritual realm. You used to be in the other realm. Although all your sins were hidden in Christ when he went to the cross, you were still dead in your sin. So here's the deal. You've been made anew in the spiritual realm. You have used to be in the other realm, but you died to that realm, see? And now you have, by grace through faith, right? And now you have a new address, see? In Jesus for good works. That's the idea. And that's the result of the new creation. You don't get saved by good works. You get saved to produce them, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Now, let's summarize this now. We've covered enough, and I want you to, to, to just celebrate all of that and why, why Paul was, had reasoned through these complex thoughts. And very simple as they worked their way out. Salvation is very simple. A presentation of two choices. But for Paul, he worked out the complex issues here and then came up with these words and it just kind of reduced them down, very concentrated form, right? It's like a, it's like a box of concentrated orange juice. You take a, 
swig of that, it's like, oh my goodness, what is this? See, but when you begin to break that up and you understand that, you begin to understand what all happened and why Paul says, wow, the love of Christ constrains us. He died for me, substitutionary, and he died for all, and the sins of all mankind are in him. Everybody's positionally in a place where they can be redeemed. That was the finished work of Christ on the cross. And a Christian is new, brand new when he comes to faith and he's become something he never was before. And the love of Christ compels you to do all that he's prepared for you and to live your life for him. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says he died for all so that they who live, so that they who live, was that everybody? And again, on this other side, we won't go into it extensively. Everybody whose sins were potentially in Christ, do they all live? They don't, do they? They don't. You understand that? And that's very important, again, concept to grasp. But he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Are you ready for that? See? Have you looked at your life and said, is this all there is? Because if you haven't, you will. And God's answer for you is no. This is not all there is. I created you for something better. And it's not addition, it is transformation. It's not that you get something you didn't have before and keep something you did have, see? It's transformation, remember that, and we'll come back to it, but being a Christian is not getting something new, it's becoming someone new. Would you like that, see? Would you like that? It means that we've died to sin in our new nature. Sin no longer the abiding power in our lives. Would you like that? Charles Wesley says it this way, We've sang this hymn many times. It's one of my favorites. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flared, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. Here it is. I rose, went forth, and what? Followed thee. Now, The very next verse is the transitory passage. It takes us to Paul's next topic. Confidence for the future, his confidence in the transformation. Okay? So now we understand how the transformation occurred, what went on in the love of Christ, and how that constrains Paul to do what he does. Then Paul wants you to be confident in the process, what happens at the end. And so his confidence in the transformation is our next next section. There's been a death and there's been a resurrection. And Paul says, therefore, therefore... That's the case, see. If one died for all and all died, so that those who live might not live for themselves any longer, therefore, if that's the case, then from now on, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. That's what we're going to look at next week. And I love that as Paul just moved from this confidence and his conscience the reason why he does, does everything he does, the waypoints that help him know he's on the right track, so that future is going to be confident. He says, if that's the case, and we're conformed by this love of Christ, which is so vast and unmeasurable and overwhelming, if that's the case, those who live, live no longer for themselves, and we now recognize no one according to the flesh. And we'll look at that next time, Lord willing. The confidence of every believer, it's so powerful, but as you, as you think about your own life, factor in that the apostle was formerly an unrepentant sinner. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Payment was made. 
who was serving his selfish desires, and the God of Israel had no real place in his affections. Paul was so arrogant. No doubt Paul was familiar with the story of the cross of Christ, strange though it might seem by itself, and without interpretation, the cross of Christ really is a meaningless event. During the age when Jesus walked on the earth, thousands of men died in that way. If you just think about it like that, I mean, thousands upon thousands died that way. What then is so special about Calvary? Standing by themselves, you know, passion plays, symbolic crosses on on ecclesiastical clothing, you know, crosses on a church building, you know, golden crosses around the neck, crucifixes worn and necklaces. That says nothing, okay? As a man of his time, Saul the Pharisee knew about Roman punishments, he must have been aware of what had happened to Jesus. That information is not enough. It was Calvary as a substitutionary sacrifice that changed his life. Okay? And when you witness, as Ben was talking about earlier today, it's the bad news that you are in your sin still. Christ has loved you and paid your penalty. So you can say that with a clear conscience because he has, even though they remain in their sin. Did you know that? That's how they're going to be judged at the end. Christ paid for their sin on the cross, and they chose instead to bear it themselves. See? So this whole just, just crucifixion by itself has no meaning. But when Paul began to comprehend this is a substitutionary sacrifice, that changed his life, see? And by the grace and the purpose of God, he was chosen and multiplied millions after him to understand the love expressed by the cross for the benefit of so very many. See, Has the love of Christ become the motivating factor in your life? Have you responded to his death and his resurrection so that your life can have the purpose that God designed for it from ages past? Because being a Christian is not getting something new, it's becoming someone new. See, would you like that? Would you bow with me as we pray? Beloved, have you thought through it and concluded that one died for all, therefore all died? Now what? Now what? What do I do? So the question is, are you ready to die with Christ that you might truly live? That captures salvation in a nutshell. To give up your life to find it. Lose your life to save it. Christ has done the work already, and I can confidently say to you, he's paid for all of your sin on the cross. Until you confess and believe, you will no wise receive that benefit. You have to say what the Bible says about you, that you're a sinner, born into sin, following your own way, doing what you want, yourself being the judge of your own actions, evaluating your good works in some imaginary way that you think it's going to be good enough to make you pleasing to a holy God who sent his son to die in your place. It's foolishness. Confess your sin to him. Repent of that sin. That means to turn and be sorry for it. Tell him what it is. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that that payment was sufficient on your behalf. A very simple transaction worked out in the mind of God from ages past for you. Just as personal as one died for all.
you've confessed and believed, desire to give up your life to find it, Scripture says unequivocally, you are redeemed. Sacrifice of Christ on your behalf has been credited to your account and he has made you righteous by grace. And you are fit for the kingdom now and you were never fit before. But you still live in this body of flesh and now is the time to begin by the ministry of the word and discipleship to become a reprint of his son here on earth. To begin to be the person God designed you to be. Bad news, good news. If you prayed and received Christ as your Savior today, before you go, card in the pew in front of you. It says, welcome guest on the back. You can indicate you prayed and received Christ as your Savior. Please give that to me before you go. Don't leave without without establishing that, that waypoint in your life that you confessed and believed. And the credit of all that Christ has done has been credited to you. What a joy that is. And angels celebrate in heaven that because of your desire to submit. It's our desire to help you grow. We're really here to equip believers for works of service. Be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And be our desire to help you do that. Let us know that you've prayed and received Christ as your Savior. If you're at the point where you'd like to, if you haven't yet, if you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to talk to you more. Come up and talk to me after the service. Uh, give me an email, send me a text, tell me you'd like to talk. It'd be my joy to do that. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for, even in these very small, very short passages, so complex, so concentrated. We might understand why Paul was so overwhelmed with this love of Christ for him and for the sins of the world. I think about the scope of that and all that who have ever lived our obvious response if we've been born again to new life is to let that be the motivating factor that drives us along. Father, I pray that we'll be like that. Pray for ourselves now. The fruit of that kind of life will begin to be manifest in us. Not in our husband, not in our wife, not in our kids, our relatives that live somewhere else, our co-worker who says he's a believer in it, you. the love Christ has for us and has demonstrated for us constrain us put us in a certain direction motivate us to action we pray this in the name of your son Jesus all God's people said Amen